because I understand how much that takes for teachers to hold up a really strong resistance about like, no, we're not doing that in our classroom. We honor all students, all genders, all ethnicities, uh, and just centering humanity and humanizing our students. So shout out to those teachers. Um, And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. This is year 18 in the classroom for me. And this here, of course, is all the above, your place for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Once again, shout out, shout out, shout out to everybody who is watching us on YouTube or listening on the go. We appreciate having you here. And I have it on pretty good authority, Jeff, that whoever is watching or listening to this episode is a true AOTA family member because our previous two episodes had some, let's just say, slightly controversial type topics <laughs> in the world of education. And if you're still here after that detracking conversation that we had with Dr. Eric Tashalis and after that critical race theory conversation that we had with Dr. Yvette Butler, that means you're really rocking with us because you know that our school system can and should be a more humanizing space for students of all backgrounds and all that. So shout out to those of y'all who are still rocking with us. Jeff, here we go. We are nearing the end of April, looking at May, wrapping up the school year. I hope you're doing great. What's, what's going on with you these days? Yeah, man. Uh, well, I, I just want to say I co-sign on what you just said uh, <laughs> and want to welcome back the, <laughs> the brave uh, supporters of all the above that we have because, um, you know, we, not only were we talking controversial topics, not only were we talking about the, the dreaded boogeyman of CRT, uh, you know, <laughs> we did so with uh, Professor Yvette Butler law professor teaching the one class on critical race theory in the state of Mississippi, okay? So yeah. if you didn't check out that episode, because it came out a couple days after our usual rhythm, it was spring break out here uh, uh, in, uh, in LA, so, you know, a little delay. So if you missed it, Definitely go back and check that out. Uh, really fascinating conversation that, um, I, you know, I think everybody um, who rocks with us here on All the Above would appreciate. Um, so, Manuel, I am at the, the time of filming this fresh off of my not spring break, but, uh, <laughs> you know, two, two extra days I got on a, a long weekend, which was, uh, which was helpful. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, a little bit of rejuvenation in my life, which I am grateful for. So, um, so yeah, doing, doing all right, man. Word up, word up. All right, well, after those two controversial topics that we discussed, Jeff, and with all that's going on in the world, I feel like we could use some joy in our lives. I feel like we could use a, a, a voice in education, this episode, who really lifts the spirits of all of us out here uh, doing the good work of trying to create a better education system for everybody, Jeff. So break it down for us. What do we have on today's agenda? Yeah, man. Well, we got a great one for everybody, as usual. 
And uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm thrilled with today's guest. We are 100% certified, keeping the streak intact, four years and counting, Dr. Rustin, of mm -hmm. having only the dopest guests here on All the Above. Yeah. And uh, the guest we have today is uh, just a, a big name. I think some uh, someone who everybody out here in the world of education has probably heard of um, or seen in some way, shape, or form. She is none other then National Teacher of the Year for 2021, Juliana Utube, uh, coming to us uh, from her home in Nevada. And uh, we're going to have a fascinating discussion about a range of things that relate to kind of what it means to be uh, National Teacher of the Year um, and her sort of philosophy around how she's approaching the work and in, in her push for joyous and just uh, schooling and education and experiences for educators in our nation's schools um, is really going to be the thrust of the conversation. So we're going to get into some fascinating things today, folks. Um, stick around. You definitely don't want to miss it. Yeah, can't wait. Can't wait. Miss Earth in the building. But at first, folks, we have our do now. We're going to take a look at some headlines in the world of education. Today, we'll be looking at a... Um, uh, uh, a move by students to turn to their phones for some some counseling. Um, what could go wrong there? And of course, um, the latest edition of the woke mob striking again. So stay tuned. Do now is up next. All right, folks. Now it's time for today's do now. Jeff, how are we going to do the do now today? Well, uh, Dr. Rustin, here in Los Angeles, of course, we are uh, still uh, relatively fresh uh, coming off a of spring break recently. And uh, nothing is more important uh, in this final stretch of the school year, Manuel, as we gear up for uh, everybody's favorite part of the season, testing, uh, to figure out who's here. Got to hit that 95% participation threshold, man. Attendance. We got to take a roll call, see who's in the building. All right. Sounds good then. Sounds good. Let's let's see who's in the building today. Jeff, first name for roll call is Alexa. Ah, Alexa. Well, I you know, I know Alexa. Uh, you know, uh, roughly. Uh, I do not use Alexa in my household because uh, I feel like Jeff Bezos uh, already has enough information about me, and I don't need him listening to my most <laughs> intimate uh, conversations all around my house. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, yeah, Alexa, cool. I, you know, it's, it's cool technology, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually have more than one student this year who's named Alexa, and I, I think they're a bit annoyed at the growth of Amazon Alexa because, mm. you know, all the jokes and all that stuff. So, yeah, um, this story here, well, first of all, you did mention Amazon, I think, a few times on our most recent episode, or maybe I it was did. the one before that. Oh, man. Yeah, so... What's... What's 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 going on with the programming in the brain? <laughs> I don't know. It's it's uh, that's well, that is to be fair, I, I we're of course not doing that. <laughs> we're we're not sponsored by Amazon or by Alexa. And actually this story here doesn't specifically deal with Amazon's Alexa, but I'm sure Amazon is connected to it somehow, some way. This is a story about artificial intelligence and chat bot boxes, or chat bots, mm. I should say, that um, more and more teenagers are using to get their mental health um, support. And yeah, it's kind of worrisome 
for an old guy like me. All right, so let's get into it. This story comes to us uh, by way of Mark Keelerber for the 74million.org. And we featured, I think, a few stories from, well, several stories from the 74 um, over the course of this show. And Mark Keelerber's names come up quite a few times. And I hope I'm not uh, butchering it. But in any case, uh, good reporting here about these artificial intelligence uh, chatbots. And uh, in his story, which we'll link below, of course, he shares the story of 15-year-old Jordine Lewis of North Carolina, who's a stressed out teen who's struggling to deal with the challenges and anxieties of pandemic life. Now, Jordine didn't feel comfortable going to a therapist, so she turned to Wobot. That's Wobot, like whoa with a, with a W, whoa as in like you're sad. Wobot, one of a growing number of chat bots that use artificial intelligence to engage in text conversations with users. So the worsening youth mental health crisis, which we've spoken about on this show a few times, um, has seen the use of these AI tools expand to the point that some researchers are wondering whether robots might replace living, breathing school counselors and trained therapists. As more and more young people struggle with mental health challenges, national estimates suggest there are fewer than 10 child psychiatrists per 100,000 youth. This is less than a quarter of the staffing level recommended by the American Academy of Child and adolescent psychiatry. So these so-called digital wellness tools like mental health chatbots have shown up with a promise to fill these gaps in America's overburdened and under-resourced mental health care system. In fact, school districts across the country have recommended the free Wobot app to help teens cope with the moment. Thousands of other mental health apps have also flooded the market, pledging to offer a solution. Critics, of course, are worried that these are a Band-Aid solution to real psychological suffering. Uh, Surfi Tekken, who is an associate philosophy professor at the University of Texas at San Antonio, has challenged the ethics of AI-powered chatbots and says that these apps miss critical pieces such as body language, tone, and other nonverbal communication that traditional therapists rely on. However, psychologist Allison Darcy, who happens to be the founder and president of Wobot Health, says that traditional mental health care has long failed to combat the stigma of seeking treatment and her app aims to make help more accessible. That uh, 15-year-old who was referenced in the story, Jordine, who is a stressed out advanced placement student in North Carolina, has used Wobot and said that it urged her to challenge her negative thoughts and it offered calming breathing exercises. She said, quote, it's a robot, it's objective, it can't judge me. Critics, of course, have offered reasons to be cautious, pointing to glitches, questionable data collection and privacy practices, and flaws in the existing research on their effectiveness. So, Jeff, here we have young people turning to their phones, getting mental health support from these artificial intelligence chatbots. What could go wrong? What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> Oh, Manuel. Oh, where where to begin? Okay, so first of all, disclaimers up front. I, too, am a crusty old man who likes to <laughs> yell at kids to get off my lawn. I don't even have a lawn, but I still like to yell at kids to get off my lawn. And I will own my crusty old manness in this particular conversation. Period. End of sentence. Also, now <laughs> what I think about this story is I'm like... First of all, this is this is a cockamamie profit driven scheme to like get people to give their most intimate thoughts and feelings to a company 
that is then going to turn around, as was noted in the article, and share that data with companies like Facebook, who will also share it with every other company on earth to try to sell you stuff or get you on medication or whatever else, right? Uh, so I think the potential for exploitation in particular for young people uh, in this kind of a use of AI is extremely high. It is to the point, Manuel, that I would say it's like a virtual guarantee that what is going to be happening here is exploitation of people's most intimate thoughts, right? Um, and vulnerabilities. So I am on guard immediately from this concept. And like, I think this stance should be, they have to prove the safety of this product in that regard in order for it to be considered safe for anyone to, to use. And we should not assume on any level benign intent <laughs> from, from this organization uh, at all, okay? Now, some might say that's an alarmist take or that's, you know, that's overreacting or that sort of thing. Um, I am not universally against the use of technology in various ways to support mental health and well-being. Um, you know, the, the growth of telehealth services, people accessing mental health services virtually, the growth of use of apps for different kinds of things that help you with like meditation or mindfulness or, um, you know, processing your thoughts or, you know, uh, unlearning certain habits and building new habits, like all that stuff cool, I'm down for it. I even use some of those apps, okay, in different ways in my life. So I get it. But stepping into this space that's trying to be like a quasi-therapist role, um, I think is frankly dangerous. Um, and especially for young people who, who tend to have such a lower threshold of skepticism for digital products, this feels like potentially highly exploitative. It feels like potentially not helpful from the standpoint of what people are often seeking and needing is understanding someone who's listening to them, a relationship. And even though that relationship with a clinical provider is a different relationship than you know a friend or a family member, of course, but there's still the relational component of the work. And anybody who's been to therapy, I think, understands the importance of like your connection with and sense of relationship with your therapist uh, being important to creating the context in which you can do the work. So, you know, maybe there's some lane for this, Manuel, that is helpful and useful that's just like, hey, you can talk to this bot 24 hours a day. You could talk to this bot while you're sitting alone in a bathroom stall somewhere and stressing out. You can talk to this bot without even having to talk. So you could be sitting on the subway or, you know, on a, some kind of public space and engage and share and not have to you know, worry about confidentiality in that way. So like maybe there's good uses here, but I'm, I feel like we have to start the conversation with like, whoa, this is highly, highly suspect, likely to be exploitative, prove that it's not, and then we can go somewhere with it. That's, that's my take. And also, get off my lawn. <laughs> Was that whoa on purpose? You said we have to start this conversation with like, whoa. This is Wobot, Jeff. I don't know if you did yes. that on purpose, but that was... That yeah, was. my woe was a W-O-A-H, period. Uh, not a W-O-E. Okay, got you, got yeah. you. Yeah, man, this concerns me. I know I'm old. I know I don't use my phone in the same way that young people do, but I also know that uh, tech firms are not to, not to be trusted. Like, frankly, they're just not to be trusted. Now, the story itself... 
although I, it identifies Wobot in particular, um, this isn't really just about that one company. So I, don't, I by no means want to make any assumptions about that company or that company's motivations uh, individually or, or specifically. But I just know that for a service like this to be free, what do we learn from the tech world? Things that are free, well, they, they're not free just out of the kindness of the founder's hearts. Like they have a plan for making money. And in this case, mm -hmm. either... Either it's the collecting data. Now, if you watch the actual intro little video um, online about this service, like it introduces itself as this cute little robot. And in the video, it talks about building this emotional profile of the user based on their input and this and that. Like that emotional profile, imagine how valuable that is if you have it for swaths of young people across the country. The founder might have no intention of ever using that data for anything, you know, profit driven, but like, okay, let's say five years from now, they get bought by a bigger company that wants that data because they want to know what those young people, you know, they all the things that you could do with that data. It's just, I don't trust that part of it at all. And I am concerned about the fact that this is clearly a Band-Aid solution. I don't think anybody really disputes the fact that this is this is here because we don't have enough uh, trained therapists and psychiatrists out there for young people. I would love to see greater investment in in building up those resources so that pe young people could talk to somebody in person and get the support they need and not have to turn to um, <clears throat> turn to an algorithm. This whether it's Siri, whether it's Alexa, whether it's Wobot in this case, these things are are presented to us as if they were like actual like individuals and we have like a, a relationship with them like as if Siri's actual person or Alexa's a person or Wobot, Wobot is an actual little robot that you could build a relationship with but they're not they're these massive algorithms and it reminds me of the film Her which came out like almost mm -hmm. 10 years ago now with uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson where he's building a relationship with this artificial intelligence um, voiced by Scarlett Johansson and like I worry about young people having these conversations with a chatbot in at 2 a.m. or whatever and really like feeling like they are talking to an actual person when they're not and what impact that might have when as they realize that this is not what they thought it was in the the movie you know he realizes towards the end like she's she's not an actual person and she doesn't just talk to you she talks to thousands of others and this is just not what you thought it was and I just would like to see solutions that bring kids off their phones but again I'm old, I don't use my phone the same way young people do. I get it, there's a stigma going and asking for help. And if if a chat bot could help introduce like calming exercises, breathing exercises to young people, that sounds great. It's just what comes next. That's the, that's the part I'm worried about. Just like those electronic hall passes that we talked about last episode. Yeah, I get it on the face of it. Seems convenient, seems nice, but I'm worried about what comes next because these tech companies time and time again have proven to us that they are profit driven and that comes first no matter what little marketing they use to present their, their service as, as being for the benefit of communities like they are profit driven what's going to come down the line when they get bought out by somebody else it's just i don't like it man i don't like it i don't trust yeah. it i'm 100 percent here with you on that man and I, I would say i would even go further than what you said manuel which is we don't have to wait until they get bought by you know whoever right whatever billionaire out there or a corporation out there buys them Right now, <laughs> what they're doing is gathering data and selling the data. That's the profit model in the short run. Right. The long run profit model is start charging, right? So they're going to be a monthly subscription fee or whatever, right? Or, or a, you pay 99 cents each time you use the service or however it's structured, right? 
And then they're still going to sell your data and they're just going to get better at it over time. Oh, yeah. So, like, guaranteed, that is the business model here. And as much as to us, it is we're here to provide mental health support services and fill the gap, you know, because we don't have enough providers and, you know, uh, reduce stigma and break down barriers and all these things that that could partially be true. But they're not a business that uh, is going to go to investors and say, hey, here's what we do. We break down barriers, blah, blah. They're going to be like, what we do is get people's most intimate thoughts and figure out how to more effectively sell them stuff that they never wanted in the first place. Right. Uh, (laughs) And how to figure out how to get more profit out of people uh, than we otherwise could without this more deep information we now have about them since they've been getting therapy from a bot. So. I'm not here for it either, man. I put put me last in line to sign up for this service. <laughs> man, when the robots take over, they're gonna know so much about us, man. They're gonna know so much about us and how to how to hurt us. Yeah. Yep. All right, Jeff. That was a bummer. That was a bummer. Let's have something uplifting for our second story. Something that gives us hope <laughs> for the future. What we got? What we got? Who's next on the roll call? Well, You know, depending upon how you look at this, uh, Manuel, um, you could see this story as incredibly hopeful and liberatory and uplifting. Yeah, or as fascist and crazy. Okay, so it's it's this is all a matter of perspective, uh, right here. As they say, it's all relative. Um, So our second uh, roll call term, who's in the house for today, Manuel, is the notorious, the uh, the one and only. Woke mob. Woke mob in the building, Dr. Rustin. Woke mob. Man. Jeff, remember when the term woke was actually just used amongst um, the black community uh, as a way Mm. of, like, you know, remaining aware and vigilant against uh, systemic oppression and the various ways that the country tries to destroy us? Just like, hey, man, stay woke, stay woke. Mm -hmm. I miss those days. I feel like so much, so much language the black community gets taken and distorted and turned into like even cancel culture. I could go on, but in any case, I'm tired, tired of hearing non-black folks use the term woke, um, especially in a disparaging way, which almost exclusively it's used in a disparaging way now. Um, all right. Woke mob. That doesn't sound joyous at all, Jeff. What do we got? <laughs> well, this is a fascinating story, Manuel. So, so let's uh, dig into it here. Okay, this story uh, is based on an article by Valerie Strauss in the Washington Post. So shout out to Valerie. We have uh, cited her work uh, frequently over the years. Um, And her piece also includes a piece of writing by high school English teacher um, and national board certified teacher, Sarah Mulhern Gross. I hope I'm saying that name uh, gross. I hope I'm saying that name correctly. Um, And here we go. Book banning in public schools is, according to new reports, at an all-time high as right-wing groups and Republican-led legislatures target works that address race, racism, gender, sexuality, and other issues they don't want students to discuss in classrooms. They have also raised the level of rhetoric to include accusations that those who promote books they are challenging are sexually, quote, grooming young children. Sarah Mulhern Gross, a national board certified English teacher at High Technology High School in Lincroft, New Jersey, has already been lambasted by vitriolic critics for the way she discussed Romeo and Juliet in her classroom last year through the lens of toxic masculinity. 
Within days of teaching that unit, far right-wing publications twisted her words to denounce, quote, woke liberal indoctrination in schools, end quote. Strangers sent Mulhern Gross messages on social media accusing her of indoctrinating students, of being unprofessional and unintelligent. She received a handwritten letter addressed to her at school. The letter accused her of being a, quote, low-life pseudo-intellectual, swallow-the-lib-woke BS Kool-Aid bleep bleep, end quote. Uh, now, said Mulhern Gross in response, I won't lie. I hesitated when it came time to plan my Romeo and Juliet unit this year. Should I skip the play? Should I not introduce my students to the possibility that toxic masculinity could have played a role in this play? Small decisions about the books shared and not shared in classrooms and libraries could have far-reaching impacts on students. When teachers fear being attacked for even mentioning a book to a student, they will stop talking about books. They will close their classroom libraries. Mulhern Gross writes that the growing tide of attacks and threats against teachers will have a chilling effect on teachers, librarians, and school officials that could be devastating. Teachers and school librarians have already admitted to quietly removing books that partisan groups might view as problematic. They are not ordering new books included on lists that, put, uh, that were put together by organizations such as No Left Turn in Education. So uh, fascinating article here, Manuel, and also kind of fascinating because there's like two articles in one. So shout out to both authors um, of this piece. But um, Manuel, as a card-carrying certified uh, communist member of the liberal woke mob, um, are you still in all three of those organizations? Uh, did I get that you, correct? You left out cultural Marxist, but yes. Ah, my bad. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to shortchange. You know, it's important on this show. We like to recognize people's professional accomplishments. Let the record reflect. Dr. Rustin is also a member of the cultural Marxist. Uh, so so uh, as a groomer of children, um, what say you about this story, Dr. Rustin? First of all, I am just like... I don't know if the word, I don't, I don't have the word for how I feel about the term groomer now being used in this kind of way all over the place. Like they've really weaponized this term and taken it from its original meaning and original purpose. Of course, originally groomer was meant to be somebody, uh, a teacher or a trusted adult who was slowly but surely grooming a young child into um, what would be an abusive relationship, sexual relationship or what have you. And now they're just flatly using it for any teacher out there that's doing or teaching anything that is anywhere near the real humanizing critical education that we need. And um, it's it's very worrisome, it's very worrisome. On our own show, we had a law professor, Dr. Yvette Butler, a law professor share that when she taught about Brown versus Board of Education most recently, she found herself leaving elements of, of her own teaching out of it, out of concern with how it would be interpreted, giving the law that was moving through Mississippi, the anti-CRT legislation. And she, you know, talked about how she, you know, reflected on that and corrected that and, and went back to students and, and kind of explained and, and gave them. But just if a law professor is second guessing their own content, then you could imagine what an elementary school teacher, middle school teacher, high school teacher um, might be doing when it comes down to these threats that they might be receiving from, from parents. The chilling effect is very, very, very real. It's uh, folks should just, the folks who are behind all of this, the people at the top who have 
plotted this all out. The Chris Rufos of the world, the James Lindsay's of the world, uh, and all their funders should be ashamed of themselves for weaponizing parents, young fam, uh, young folks all around the country into like wanting to report anything left and right, any uh, report this teacher for teaching Romeo and Juliet and pointing out the real obvious toxic masculinity that is uh, within that story. Uh, they should be ashamed of themselves because a lot of folks out there, a lot of folks out there can reasonably engage in these discussions about what's right and what's wrong in terms of what's uh, what's right for uh, the classroom and what young people should be reading or shouldn't be reading. But a lot of folks cannot reasonably engage in those conversations because they've been lost to the rabbit holes of political indoctrination and they are dangerous folks. This teacher wrote about receiving a handwritten letter incredibly vulgar, incredibly violent language in that letter that she received at her school. Uh, that's only a hop skipping away from that parent, that person, whoever wrote that, who's probably not even a public school parent, from them showing up to the school to confront confront this teacher face to face. I remi I'm reminded of a story I saw uh, originally two years ago, and then it was up in the news again locally here about this man who was a train conductor. And I don't know if you heard about this, Jeff, down in Long Beach. Uh, he tried to run his train off the tracks in order to sink oh. a boat that was in the harbor, the boat being the USS, I think, Mercy. And it was a Navy hospital ship sent to the Los Angeles area to help with the, as the pandemic was beginning, um, to help with the shortage of hospital beds. This man is a train conductor and he tried to run his train off the track to hit the boat. Spoiler alert, he didn't get anywhere near the ship. He was like hundreds and hundreds of yards away. I don't know what he thought the train would do when it was off rails. It doesn't just keep going. But um, the news, you know, he got sentenced for to a couple years this week. In any case, the news didn't talk about why he did it, but a short like Twitter search will show you that a lot of folks were out there talking about this USS, uh, this Navy hospital ship being a ship that's actually ran by the Clintons and that was actually harboring young children for their child sex ring, this and that. And he tried to sink the ship thinking he was going to be saving children or something ridiculous. A lot of folks out there do not have the capacity to have reasonable conversations about curriculum and content and teaching. And if that person was trying to run a ship off the, uh, was trying to sink a ship with the train, Imagine the type of folks who are listening to these uh, Chris Rufos and all these other folks talking about uh, groomers in the classroom. Imagine what some of them might do when they catch wind on Facebook of some teacher who dared point out to toxic masculinity in Romeo and Juliet. It's really scary stuff. So I'm not going to be here to tell teachers like, hey, you got to just push on, push through it, teach what you got to teach because, man, who am I to say that, man? It's crazy people out there and folks are really, 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 really um, on edge. I will end by saying... She wrote, the teacher wrote that it feels like these voices are everywhere. It feels like these folks are everywhere. Like so many folks say this. Um, I just want to remind everybody that the voices who are out there trying to attack our schools and trying to attack our curriculum, trying to attack our content, those voices do not represent the majority. They certainly don't represent the, the families that I teach, the, the families in the community where I teach. They certainly do not. The majority of parents, the majority of public school students want this content. They want to learn more about America's history. They want to learn more about how systems um, from uh, racial oppression to gender dynamics and all those color our experiences here in the United States. They want to learn these things and they need to learn these things and they want to see themselves in the curriculum. These voices are very loud, but they are not the majority. They simply are not. Yeah. 
I'm so glad you said that, uh, Manuel. And I think it's a really important point to remember. And also, uh, we have to remember that it is like the the advent now of this term grooming, uh, especially, first of all, it's like deeply offensive that they are using that term in this way because that is a term that actually speaks to a real type of predatory behavior that actual sexual offenders, right? Child molesters, uh, rapists, sexual assaulters, whatever the right collection of terms is, that actually describes a real pattern of behavior that people use that's abusive and exploitative. The, the great irony of the right wing's use and attempted weaponization of this term is that they are all projection, right? Like. Literally, this group, this set of folks semi-aligned or organized with the Republican Party has a whole bunch of groomers and child molesters and sexual assaulters literally in their ranks, okay? Um, We can start at the top with the former president who had dozens and dozens and dozens of sexual assault allegations to sitting members of Congress who have been involved in sexual abuse scandals or are currently facing indictments for child trafficking. Okay, so like it is, we have to remember that this set of folks it starts their their arguments from a place of projection, right? So if they're accusing you of doing some, of something, it's a very clear indication that actually it's a significant shame that they have that they are uh, are currently doing uh, in shocking numbers. So let's just state that for the record. And I would also say, man, well, it is um, this to me just reinforces some of the stuff I think we've talked about in, in previous episodes around the need for us to not play defense in these kinds of conversations, right? Like the level of vitriol and attack and hate that we're getting from these folks, it is a natural reaction in some ways to kind of like, whoa, you know, want to back away from it, right? And want to not, because frankly, some of these folks are dangerous, right? And we don't actually have any reliable protection from the state uh, from these folks currently. Um, So I get it. And at the same time, We have to, at least in our collective spaces, in our workplaces, in our organizations, in our unions, in our community organizing, have to actually play offense because we are on the morally right side of this conversation. We are practicing, advocating for the expansion of rights, the protection of humanity and dignity for all people, and they are not. This isn't a morally ambiguous situation, right? Like these folks are accusing, uh, you know, people like us, of trying to groom kids to become trans, which is like not even an actual thing, right? Like, it's literally not a thing that exists, right? And their their discussions are, there's going to be men competing in women's sports and dominating in the sports, and that's going to ruin everything. First of all, they don't care about women's sports at all. They hate at women's all. sports, right, from the beginning. And uh, and so it's a totally disingenuous argument that we don't even actually really need to entertain, right? We need to spend our time naming the ways in which these folks are practicing hateful, ob- oppressive uh, sorts of language um, and policies and advocating to put those policies in place. So that would just be my reminder to us that their vitriol against us is a sign that we are pushing in the right direction. We are grounded in the right moral values. Their projections should not distract us from the messages we are advocating for and the kinds of policies we need to put in place that are about expanding rights, recognizing the humanity and dignity of all people, and creating spaces in schools where young people communicate 
communities, especially those who are most marginalized, can feel recognized and affirmed. Um, so that, that's where I think we need to go with this. Yeah. Amen. I'm with that. I'm with that. And it's also important to remind folks that the really the individual who probably gets who should get the most credit for bringing critical race theory into the culture war and now bringing this term groomer into it. Uh, Chris Rufo, he himself recently had a speech where uh, he titled it or lecture or whatever. He titled it laying siege to institutions. It has been very clear and he's not hiding the fact that his whole goal is what he's calling universal school choice, quote unquote, universal school choice, which is another way of saying um, break apart the school system. Let's not have a public education system. Let's let uh, folks take private uh, public money and funnel it to private schools and charter schools that teach uh, religious views and what have you. So um, this is this is really about not just defending what's right, but it's also about defending the institution of public schools, man. Something that like any kid across the country should be able to just access public education that affirms them, that builds them up and helps them be, um, helps them create a, a better world for, for tomorrow. So we got to defend our schools, people. And with that in mind, it's time for some real joy. It's time for the National Teacher of the Year, last year's National Teacher of the Year, who's going to come and speak to us about just not just her experience as Teacher of the Year, but also um, just remind us of the power and um, real, real sacred duty of being a teacher, especially in this time uh, when there are so many attacks on teachers. All right. So that's in our seminar coming up next. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All The Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All The Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com support. That's aotashow.com support. There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we're on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our Anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch. Okay, all you gotta do is go to aotashow.com slash support. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us today. We are incredibly thrilled to have you here with us because we are about to have a conversation with uh, just an amazing guest. Um, she is someone I am fairly certain everybody has seen, uh, perhaps on the cover of national magazines, perhaps on national television shows, but she is none other than 2021 National Teacher of the Year, uh, Miss Juliana Urtube, also known as Miss Earth, coming to us all the way from Nevada. Uh, welcome, Juliana, to All the Above. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. 
All right. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest, folks. Um, Juliana Utube is the 2021 National Teacher of the Year and is currently in her 11th year as an educator. Miss Earth, as she is lovingly known for her efforts to beautify school grounds and engage students in gardening, teaches at the Kermit R. Booker Senior Innovative Elementary School in Las Vegas. There she is a co-teacher in pre-kindergarten through fifth grade special education settings and is an instructional strategist developing supports to meet students' differing academic, social, emotional, and behavioral needs. Juliana is a National Board Certified Teacher and is a National Board of Professional Teaching Standards Board of Directors member and Teacher Fellow. She is a Nevada Teach Plus Senior Policy Fellow and an Understood Teacher Fellow and Mentor. She's also winner of the 2018 Rogers Foundation Heart of Education Award. Since being announced as National Teacher of the Year in May of 2021, Juliana has shared her joyous and just message with pre-service teachers, educators, and policymakers across the country, including at the White House and throughout U.S. and international media. This includes publications like People Magazine, The Today Show, Univision, Telemundo, and Colombia's El País, El Espectador, and RCN Noticias, Welcome, Juliana Urtube, to all the above. I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, Teacher of the Year, dopeness in the building. Thank you, Juliana, so much for taking time out to be here with us on all the above, especially considering how busy your schedule must be. Now, as the 2021 National Teacher of the Year, you really distinguished yourself in, in a lot of ways. You were the first teacher from Nevada to get that distinction and the first bilingual teacher to get that distinction. I think only the third special education teacher to earn that distinction and the first Latina since at least 2005. And and on top of all that, this all came during one of the most challenging school years, really in the history of, of schooling in the United States. So first of all, major props to you. As a lifelong classroom teacher, I am just so proud to see you out there representing the teaching profession and the teaching force and, and, uh, and really advocating for us. And I know a lot of folks are familiar with the title of National Teacher of the Year, and maybe some folks see you know the headlines and, and what have you, but a lot of folks aren't really familiar with what the day-to-day -day work and advocacy of the National Teacher of the Year looks like. So we're hoping you can maybe shed some light on that aspect of the experience for us. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm a part of a cohort every year, every state selects a state teacher of the year. Um, and we all have our focuses, our areas of expertise. And then we come together as a class. Um, and there are just, this is where like the most powerful learning happens. I believe teachers learn the most from other teachers. Um, and they become like my family in the last year. And then some, from this pool of teachers, we all submit an application to be National Teacher of the Year. And that application really reflects our students' stories, our vision for education, our hopes for education, um, how we tr have learning transcend the classroom. And uh, that application is looked at and then four finalists are selected. Um, I, the four finalists for this year were just, they were all so beautiful. We're all so different in our focuses and our way of doing our work, but the goal is always the same, you know, making sure all of our students thrive. And then we go through a really intense interview process um, and there's a committee and that committee selects the teacher of the year. Um, and it's not that it's like the best teacher, um, but it's the teacher who maybe in that moment in time is ready 
to represent and uplift the profession. Um, and so my uh, proposal was a joyous and just education. I wanted to be inclusive of all teachers because I'm a bilingual teacher. I'm a special education teacher. I believe that I do community organizing through my teaching. And so we co-constructed this garden. Um, and so really we brought in the families and we opened up the space and we just redesigned the space so that everybody felt welcomed and everybody's linguistic gifts and cultural um, knowledge and race and ethnicity and age and ability level, all of those things were taken into account and everybody had um, value to add to building this beautiful garden. And so, um, you're right. It absolutely has been tough. And, you know, I think a lot of teachers like me naively thought, okay, this year is going to be so much easier. We got through last year, this year we got this. And then this year showed its particular challenges. And so um, I'm going to like just take it a little bit further because I believe that um, it's really hard for teachers right now to know their impact. A lot of us are hurting. Our hearts are hurting. We're not able to meet all of our students' needs. And when we think about why teachers leave, it's because we don't get the chance to teach, right? Because we're diverted in all these other ways and we're just not meeting our students' needs. And at the end of the day, that is the heaviest burden for teachers. And so um, I'm rising to the challenge, it's hard, uh, but of advocating for our profession because teachers deserve a balanced environment to teach in, you know, a healthy environment to teach in. Teachers deserve... Um, the right to be able to work in a place that gives them the opportunity to balance their personal lives and, you know, make time for self-care and mental health and all these things that we really need. Teachers deserve to be able to use their expertise, um, to be trusted and not constantly micromanaged. And we deserve to have equitable pay for our work. And with equitable pay, I don't just mean the salary we take home. I mean, great medical care, maternity and paternity leave family care, all these things that are really important that um, really detract us from being able to do what we love the most and what we're really good at, which is teaching children. Mm. Wow. I appreciate that uh, so much, um, Juliana. And I, I have to say your, um, your framing of uh, kind of the thrust of your work and your, your kind of philosophy and approach is joyous and just, um, I think is one of the kind of cleanest capturings of the stuff that that really matters uh, in our profession. I think that motivates so many people to um, to come into the profession and to stay with a you know with an orientation towards service to students and, and the community. And so um, I, I just wanted to just want to share how much that resonates and, and I think um, I'm sure inspires um, many folks around the country who um, who are hearing that message from you. And um, as National Teacher of the Year, you certainly have a you know a platform, uh, perhaps a platform larger than just about any uh, educator in the country to, you know, to speak to matters of policy and importance in the field of education. Um, and that is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And I think many people would say we still exist in a larger system where there aren't yet enough opportunities for actual practitioners, actual, you know, K-12 teachers or folks who are, um, who are, steeped in the work at school sites of teaching and learning and, you know, operating and running schools uh, to have voice in 
spaces where big decisions are getting made about the major challenges and policy issues impacting our, our profession today. Um, I'm wondering if you could share, you know, in particular from your lens, having, you know, gone from sort of a quote unquote regular teacher to national teacher of the year, um, you know, could share your thoughts on, on what should be the role and the place of, of teacher voice in those um, kinds of decision-making spaces, and what advice might you give to folks who are, you know, working on the ground or advocating for teacher voice in those spaces? I, I just don't think that we can make any decisions related to education, especially K-12 education or pre-K-12 education, without having direct teacher approval. Like, we need to be able to put our stamp on approval on policy, right? We need to be able to uh, communicate sometimes what we see as very obvious unintended uh, consequences of policy um, because sometimes we can save ourselves a lot of resources, a lot of heartache by just listening to teachers first. You know, um, we are like the ultimate people who can just multitask. We can do schedules that, you know, should win the Nobel Peace Prize in physics for bending time and space. Um, as a special education teacher, I know every couple of weeks I had to redo my schedule and I don't know how we made it work, but we did. And we know that schedules lead to an incredible amount of change in terms of equity for students if we build schedules first based on special education needs, right? And so that was advocacy. Um, but really what I think is really important is for teachers to trust themselves, for us to know you don't need to be an expert in policy to inform policy. You are already an expert from your classroom. Like what we do day in, day out, how we already know that that one kid is gonna come in and do that one thing every single day, that expertise is really valuable. And what I hear very often is teachers minimizing their expertise and their leadership. Oh, I'm just a teacher. No, you are a teacher, right? Um, I was having a conversation with a teacher friend not that long ago, and we were talking about the frustrations of how slow sometimes change is, you know, federal, state change, even district change. Um, and we were making the realization or having the realization that teachers are the most powerful people within the system, right? Even for top leaders and administrators, change takes a really long time to like exercise. But in my classroom, I can say, hey, that strategy I did yesterday didn't work. I'm going to replace it with this one that this student suggested. And that same day have that impact, that growth. Uh, I think teachers are the most powerful people within the system. But sometimes because we're isolated or we're overwhelmed and overworked, we forget that. So um, you don't need to be prepared to talk to a policymaker. Um, somebody at CCSSO told me policymakers' job isn't, um, well, your job when you talk to policymakers isn't that you have to know exactly how that happens. It's their job to listen to you and make it happen. So if you say, I need a smaller caseload for special education services, otherwise I can't satisfy the law-abiding minutes, then it's a policymaker's job to make that happen for us. And so it's also about partnership, right? It's about building bridges and relationships. Policymakers shouldn't just be reaching out to us a one-time deal. We should have ongoing relationships. Every single policymaker and administrator really should have a, a school that is friendly to them, that they can pop in and out of frequently and really get the pulse on what's going on. I know that that's what I've had to do this year as National Teacher of the Year because it, 
the position does take me out of the classroom for the year, um, but I frequently visit my school and just check in on my teacher friends, ask them what's going well, what's not, remind them of their impact, of their of what is happening in the classroom and how beautiful that power is. Um, and I think teachers are so careful with their power that um, that's what keeps my hope going, that eventually policy will line up with what teachers are seeing and needing. As a classroom teacher, I love that. I love that answer. And um, within it, you mentioned one of the big challenges that teachers are often isolated and, and overwhelmed. I mean, the 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 work of a teacher is, is very, very difficult, challenging work. And, you know, that's one one part of the reason why we're seeing a, a ongoing and deepening shortage of teachers in, in the pipeline. And, you know, that's a major concern. There's a lot of challenges in education, of course, uh, for sure. But the the ongoing teacher shortage is one that um, has been discussed a bit more recently because of, of the, what the next several years look like in terms of teachers perhaps leaving the profession or deciding folks deciding not to enter their profession. So we're wondering, you know, in, in terms of Besides the basic supply and demand nature of this, what do you think we should be doing right now to recruit and retain really awesome folks like yourself to to remain in the classroom, especially considering that this shortage is especially hurting our most marginalized communities, um, especially hurting students who live in areas that have been so historically underserved? So I think students need to see their teachers thriving. They need to see their teachers enjoying their day in, day out of their work. Um, most teachers, this is our life's work. Um, and I think school leaders have a lot of influence and a lot of impact on that. You know, they say teachers, number one, is the number one influence on a student's learning. Well, in a site administrator, school administrator is the number one determinant on a teacher's efficacy, um, on our retention, Right. When we know, okay, the system's not perfect, but I can go to this person or these group of people for help, for support, for understanding, and I get it. I'm not just being told to reach out for help, I'm being listened to, and maybe it's not 100% what I need, but there's movement towards it. That's what teachers are patient, and we can carry a lot on our backs. So when a teacher is getting ready to leave, it's because they've exhausted all of these possibilities. Um, I also think that we need to be more generous about how teachers collaborate with each other. Oftentimes that's the thing that gets crossed off first from the schedule is teacher to teacher collaboration. I'll tell you this, that I am still a teacher because of a co-teaching model, right? So I, we were overwhelmed. I have always taught at schools that you know are under-resourced and the students you know, just are in first line of what um, Zaretta Hammond calls um, cognitive reparations. Right. Uh, she said that and it just blew my mind. Anyway, they're first in line for these cognitive reparations. And um, that's where I've always taught. Um, and so we had like a rezoning and all of a sudden my caseload doubled and I was able to bring in a third teacher and her and I shared a classroom together, meaning we had K through five resource in our room and we helped each other out. Our students got to go to their group based on their ability level, based on their behavioral needs. We supported each other. Um, during part of that time, she was breastfeeding and so she had a pump. So we turned our closet into this beautiful lactation office, something that does not exist in schools. I was able to cover her classes while she was able to do that. We were able to laugh and joke and 
we were able to struggle with the students who needed the most help, right? We struggled together with those students. It wasn't just one person. So I think we have to be more generous about how we pair teachers together, um, creating more of a model where, you know, teachers that have um, that kind of like that coaching strength or lots of years of experience um, really overlap with a lot of other teachers. Um, and because I think it's really unfair that our options as teachers are to become an administrator if we want to move up in the career ladder. And I think that that's really unfair. We really have to be more creative about how we lend teacher expertise to each other. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that that's one of the things that effectively helps teachers. Um, and teachers, you know, need to talk to our students about the beauty of this profession, that yes, of course there's struggle, but that there's hope. Um, I have been really privileged to get to travel the country and talk to a lot of aspiring teachers, some as young as high school. I was in Albuquerque a couple weeks ago and I was participating in the Ed Rising Conference where these youngsters come up with projects and lesson plans and um, speeches and things like that. And they have competitions among themselves as future teachers. And I got to keynote, but the joy in it was hanging out with the students during and after the conference. Um, some students showed me their bilingual books that they were writing. Other ones showed me their PSAs for how teachers need to be accountable to their students' social and emotional needs. And it was just so powerful. And I had so much hope. I know that times are great. I know that things are hard. Resources are scarce. But that things are on the horizon, right? And so it's up to all of us to think, okay, what levers can I pull today to make this space more just, to make it more joyous? And if it's not just or joyous, then it can wait. Mm. Wow. Uh, so much uh, resonating with me and uh, that you're pushing me to, to think about there, um, Juliana. And um, honestly, one of, one of the things that just hit me right in my soul is, uh, as you were talking is as a former principal in a very crowded school building in, in New York City, uh, the only place in our school that was like a legitimately single room private space where uh, new mother teachers could pump was the tiny bathroom in my office as, as the principal. And I always just felt so guilty that that was the one space um, that people had to use that was you know legitimately private, didn't have windows or that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, in a profession that is what 70 plus percent female, um, you know, nationwide, uh, just, just one tiny example of the ways in which your point about teachers needing be needing to be able to thrive, um, in their workspace as an example to students of what, you know, uh, what kind of culture we want to have in schools, um, just, you know, very powerful, um, for me in, in this moment for sure. Um, our, for our next question, want to kind of pivot a little bit to the context in which you served um, or serve as Teacher of the Year, um, which I think it's fair to say, you know, after 2020, uh, you know, most people thought like, all right, 2020 is gone, you know, <laughs> 2021 is going to be great. But uh, 2021 was certainly also one of the most challenging uh, years in, in modern education history with the kind of lingering and ongoing effects of the pandemic, uh, you know, tons of social upheaval and, you know, political backlash happening uh, around schools, uh, you know, everything from this sort of uh, hysteria that's been drummed up in the anti-CRT movement, 
um, to you know, uh, fluctuations in budget, school enrollments, staffing issues, you know, staffing shortages, all of that um, kind of taking place around schools. And um, I guess our question for you, Juliana, is really to try to get your perspective on uh, in a context where it seems like the teaching profession is in some ways under attack, in other ways, maybe just not being shown the, the kind of respect uh, as, you know, an, an important pillar of the institution of public school in a democratic society. You know, what do you think is the kind of proper place of uh, respect we should have for schools, public schools, education? And how do you think we can perhaps get back to that sort of place um, for the teaching profession? So first of all, shout out to all the teachers in all the states that are having all of these anti-human uh, legislation and policies passing, because I understand how much that takes for teachers to hold up a really strong resistance about like, no, we're not doing that in our classroom. We honor all students, all genders, all ethnicities, uh, and just centering humanity and humanizing our students. So shout out to those teachers. Um, because that's that's tough. That's really tough. And I know that a lot of teachers, um, well, I think it's just kind of part of being a teacher that some of your students and some of their fa their families may really test you and test your values. I wonder what our values are as professionals and as educators, right? So I don't mean to devalue these anti-CRT and, and, you know, book banning and all these like what I perceive are really outlier um, thoughts on education. I think what we have is folks really caring about education and also seeing how powerful education is, right? So now it's a power grab. And, you know, I think about uh, Leonard Pertier and how he talks about how power is an illusion, really. It is an illusion, right? The real power is in our transformative relationships with each other. And so in reading Sean Jinwright's book, The Four Pivots, I'm really called to like see people's humanity and to see the points where we do converge, right? Without negotiating our students' humanity, the right to accountability that we have to do better. Our schools have to be more inclusive places of belonging. Um, and also that we can navigate these waters. I mean, if anybody can do it, teachers can do it, right? Uh, I like. I, I know every single teacher has that one story about that one student who had that one challenge and through the love and mentorship and relationship, that student left that classroom without that challenge, right? So I know teachers are compelled to rise up. I just hope that we rise up supporting each other um, and that we lean on each other and knowing that the most important thing are our students, right? And so sometimes that, I think that outlier politics are sometimes meant as a form of attrition to wear us down, right? Um, instead, we can look really deep within and see what we are already doing and what our students are already accomplishing in terms of collective and hum humanitarian type work with each other. And I think that that's where the real power is. Um, it kind of goes back to the, the policy question, right? Like the most Powerful places our classroom. We can create the society we want in our classroom, regardless of how slow society actually is to catch up to it, 
right? We, and I'm not like romanticizing it. I see this happen. This I've seen this happen in my preschool classroom, right? Like this is something that the majority of teachers are able to do. And so I just really hope that we remember that impact and that power because this is what I see from teachers as I travel across the country. Yeah, well said, well said. And I know folks are, we might have some folks listening or, or watching this video who would love to hear more about your your classroom. And I just want to take a quick moment to shout out Two Dope Teachers and, you know, the homies, uh, Gerardo Munoz and Kevin Adams. Folks, if you're listening or watching, um, go back to their episode about a year ago. I think it was episode 90 um, before uh, before Juliana was named National Teacher of the Year. Uh, she shared a lot about her work in the classroom and the garden that she mentioned earlier. Uh, so definitely check that out. Shout out to the homies over there. And um, before we let you go, we do want to ask a little bit about your your experience this year. Um, obviously, it was a very eventful year. And out of 3.7 million teachers across the country, uh, you were the one that was National Teacher of the Year for 2021. And you met a lot of people and were part of a whole lot of different events and activities. So we just wanted to take a moment to ask you what you thought was maybe the, the coolest memory or moment or experience that you've had during this this whole time. And feel free to mention the, you know, if it was the wearing the spacesuit and addressing the good folks of Educolor during the summer at the Educolor Summit, you know, shout out to Educolor as well, um, you know, by all means. But yeah, what was the coolest part about this this experience looking back on it? Like we called it like the intergalactic teacher convergence or something. And yeah, the, had, yeah, y'all came up with a dope name like on the spot. We I were what goofballs, that was. you know, we pretended we were flying through space. That was cool. Gerardo was there too. Um, yeah, yeah. Shout out to Gerardo and the work that he does. And just in general for folks for like holding space to be really realistic about the teaching profession. Um, my coolest experience, you know, every time I travel somewhere else, it gets not replaced, but it gets kind of like mind mapped to another one, right? I think there's been some really high profile things that I never expected, like Dr. Biden flying in to surprise me during my announcement. A lot of things shifted this year and um, my class and I, we told each other, you know, we're not gonna have expectations of how in-person things, we're just gonna go with it because we can't control it. So normally the announcement happens, you know, in studio in New York, and instead, they transformed my school library into literally the network. Um, and later, I found out that my principal and our head custodian had gone into the building for several nights at 3.30 in the morning to make it possible. Wow. Um, the whole school district, my whole school staff had made it a top secret that Dr. Biden was going to be there. I had no idea. The love people poured into this um, and then topped off with her surprising me and really elevating uh, my announcement to a level that was just really um, outside of my expectations. I still wake up every day. I have about, I don't know, four months left. I wake up every day and I'm like, oh, I'm the national teacher of the year. Oh, like, wow. Some days I'm overwhelmed with the responsibility. Some days I'm just so proud because I didn't realize how many communities I represent that really feel unseen, that this has just been a little grain of salt of feeling seen, um, feeling validated. Um, so I don't know. I don't think I have a good answer because this whole year has just been one, a blur, but two, also really reminding me of the gratitude I have for this profession and the transformative power of education. And there have been so many people 
that have made it possible. So I think another really important thing that I would be sad if I didn't share is all of the conversations about my work with uh, my mentor, the director of the program, Sarah Brown Wesling, my other mentors, you know, Peggy Brookins, Dr. Tanya Holmes Sutton, my co-teachers, Jessica Penrod, like all of the conversations, my family, I talk about my mom at every single presentation. The conversations around the work have been my favorite moments because it's reminding me it's not about me. I'm not alone. We're all this work, we do it in community, in creation of our beloved community. And that's what this work is about. It's about shining brilliance on our students and their families. Um, so I don't know if that made any sense. It just, it's been so amazing and I'm so grateful to this year. Yeah, um, I think that made perfect sense. And, <laughs> All um, the sense. Your yeah, at, as you talk, um, Juliana, it's you know it's just so clear the uh, the passion, the kind of um, moral center that you have um, in the work, and um, that you have brought to your advocacy, serving in the National Teacher of the, of the Year role, uh, to not only you know have that be what is real in your classrooms and, you know, in Nevada, but, um, you know, something that can be infectious and contagious uh, in in the good ways. Those are dangerous words in these times of pandemic, I suppose, but uh, the, the good kind of <laughs> infectious and contagious um, in a way that brings hope and inspiration to people. And um, if, if there's one thing that, you know, that we need Right now, it is uh, hope and inspiration, I would say. So um, very much uh, appreciate your words, um, Juliana. And before we let you go, I might just ask if people are hearing this and they're you know, excited by what you had to say and they want to follow you online or learn more about your work, um, what, are, what is or what are the best ways for them to, uh, to follow you or to connect with you online? you. Um, you know, I love, love, love meeting new teachers. I think that even before I became the Nevada Teacher of the Year, the Twitter space for education was a really grounding place for me because I got to connect with other teachers who are doing social justice in all of their work. Um, so on Twitter is probably the place where I post the most and my handle is just my name, Julian Ortube. I also am warming up to Instagram stories. I'm finding that sometimes I'm in spaces that teachers can't be in because they're teaching obviously, or the travel that's involved. And so I'm starting to like Instagram stories. For example, I was uh, listening to the secretary do a student panel a couple days ago, a couple weeks ago. I don't know. Time doesn't make sense anymore. Last week. Um, and I got to do a bunch of Instagram stories to capture the students' brilliance, you know. Um, so you can find me there too, Julian Ortue, same. Uh, Facebook, I have a Facebook and I'm, it's my goal to do better on it. So don't look for me there. <laughs> so, sounds about right. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, folks, our guest today has been National Teacher of the Year for 2021, Juliana Utube uh, from Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, thank you so much, Juliana, for joining us on All the Above. Um, so grateful that you were here with us today. It's been a pleasure, and I'm so excited that teachers have this resource just to keep themselves pumped up. So thank you for all you do. All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed today's conversation. That is it for our seminar today, but stay tuned. Next up is our Class Dismissed.
All right, folks, we've come to that time in our episode where we like to pause, zoom out for a minute, and give some some props, some flowers, some respect to people out there in the world of education just doing good things. Uh, Dr. Rustin, who we got today? Yeah, man. Well, for today, this is a little different here. You know, we're not a sports podcast, but we're going to shout out the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Dodgers Foundation, who came to my school where I teach at, my campus, John Muir High School in Pasadena. And they came on Jackie Robinson Day to unveil a special mural that they commissioned to Jackie Robinson, who is our most famous alum. Jackie Robinson uh, went to our school and then he went on to Pasadena City College and then UCLA. And then, of course, um, military Negro Leagues, Major League Baseball, and at Jarmere High School, you know, the symbol of Jackie Robinson and his brother, Mac Robinson, uh, very, very important to our identity and to who we are. So the Los Angeles Dodgers, to commemorate the 75th anniversary of um, Jackie Robinson making his debut in the Major Leagues, commissioned this mural by artist Never1959. You can find him on Instagram, Never1959. And um, it shows Jackie Robinson in various stages of his life. And it is wonderful. It's really, really, really beautiful. Um, but they didn't just uh, commission the the mural. They also brought out Dodger Mookie Betts and also the son of Jackie Robinson, David Robinson, to come speak to our students and share some words of wisdom with them. And Jack Robinson's son, David, he he talk to students about really the legacy of Jackie Robinson's mother and the legacy of coming up from slavery and moving all the way to California and starting this journey for um, Jackie Robinson and his brother Mac and, and all that came after that. And Mookie Betts talked about the legacy that Jackie Robinson left for him and how he himself as a black baseball player sees himself as being responsible for uh creating a legacy for for the youngins out there. So it was a really dope event, really dope event. Um, lots of cameras and all that good stuff. Lots of Dodger gear everywhere. I'm not a baseball person. And, you know, I grew up an Oakland A's fan, if anything, although I didn't really watch the Oakland A's or nothing like that. So, um, you know, the Dodgers part of it was a little, little different for me. But, you know what I'm saying? They really showed a lot of love, a lot of love uh, to our campus. And um, everybody affiliated with the, with the organization, with the event, was um, just really, really wonderful around our students. And it was a really dope day. So shout out to the Dodgers and everybody who was involved in commemorating the 75th anniversary of Jack Robinson's debut in the major leagues. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, man. Well, I saw a few of those pictures and it looked like a beautiful mural, beautiful kind of ceremony there. Um, and I just, you know, I think Jackie Robinson is one of those figures in history that is, um, really misunderstood, right? Like oh, yeah. on every level, on the athletic side, people sleep on the fact that this man is still, I believe to this day, the only person to letter in four varsity sports man. at UCLA during his time. Okay, baseball, football, basketball, and track and field. Okay, um, you know, Hall of Fame baseball player. If you've been to the Baseball Hall of Fame, you also see the hate letters that they have in the Hall of Fame. Uh, demonstrating like just the level of violence and vitriol directed at this man um, throughout his time while he was working on that Hall of Fame career. Um, you know, he's a World War II veteran, longtime civil rights activist, very active in the movement, um, even after his, his playing days. And he was sort of out of the baseball spotlight. So this dude was a beast, man. And so yeah. I, I love the, the fact that we pause and, and celebrate, um, you know, Jackie Robinson in this way. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Yeah, it was it was very, very, very dope. So uh, shout out to them. And, oh, yeah. And they also announced a scholarship for our students that'll um, be available every year for I think they didn't they didn't give an end date. So I think it's just every year, like 
from now until whenever um, uh, scholarship for our graduating seniors. So yeah, shout out, shout out to them. And that about does it for this episode of All the Above. Folks, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed the conversation that we had uh, with Juliana and of course the Do Now stories about the, the chat bots and the um, woke mob who is actually not the mob, it's actually the, the other folks who are showing themselves to be the mob and, uh, and all that. So if you appreciated what you saw or what you listened to, please, please consider giving us that five-star review and writing a few words of, um, of expressing some love for our show so that we can show up in more educators' feeds for the podcasts and such that they listen to. So we love y'all. Remember, everything is available at our website, aotashow.com or links underneath this episode where you'll find links to the stories and all that good stuff that we discussed today. All right, folks, that about does it. Love y'all. Catch y'all next time.